I'm Barrington Smith Satachit, and this is Words to Drive By, stories to keep you company on whatever commute you're on. The following story, Tribe, stands alone, but is also part two of a trilogy of three interrelated stories. You can hear parts one and three in the episodes adjacent to this one. After the Storms, Part 2, Tribe. In the pink light of early morning, the tribe moves across the desert in a loose phalanx, roughly a dozen people across and double that front to back. Their feet sink and slip in the sand, dislodging grains, leaving divots in their wake. The tribe members who walk at the front set the pace, while those with outside positions normally watch the horizon for greenery, structures, or cloud formations. Today, these watchers have the help of a hundred eyes, because no one can resist scanning for the scouts who set out two pairs in opposite directions in search of water six days ago and have now been gone three days longer than expected. The tribe's dwindling water supply and the scouts' continued absence has put nerves on edge. Beth, a sun-reddened white woman who walks toward the middle of the group next to a tall black man named Alvin, is not immune, but resolves to push down her anxiety since it doesn't change the fact that the only thing to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other. An excellent compartmentalizer, her ex-husband Jerry used to call her, in an admiring or accusing tone, depending on the circumstance. She concentrates, instead, on the pleasantness of the morning, the slight breeze, the temperature that is warm but not yet hot, her body in motion, the night's stiffness evaporating. And Alvin. For the past several weeks, or maybe longer, he has walked the day's first miles with Beth, and she enjoys his company. She likes his matter-of-factness, his ability to be amused by small things, and how he doesn't dig for personal revelations beyond her level of comfort. Beth and Alvin have fallen into the habit of reporting their dreams from the night before, although they seldom remember them completely. Today, Alvin recalls only an image, a slender-horned gazelle like those from his childhood. The gazelle's creamy buff coats had reflected the sun's rays, he tells Beth, and their enlarged hooves helped them traverse the sands of the Saharan desert. The gazelles were able, he says, to survive merely on the water content of plants and dew from leaves. They would eat at nighttime, when it was cooler. Once, when I was small, my father woke me from sleeping and carried me out to watch a whole herd of them eating near our home, their coats glowing in the moonlight. That sounds beautiful. Yes. It was. I felt wonder. That is what I felt last night as well, in the dream. They fall silent, in deference to feelings of wonder and ruminations about how much simpler life would be if they could survive on the morning's dew. Beth takes three steps for Alvin's two. While everyone has their own stride, the tribe as a whole has developed a pace so deliberate that Beth can measure a conversational pause in distance as well as seconds. The tribe scouts use this predictability as well, 
They are experts at triangulating the distance the tribe covers in a certain amount of time and plotting a course to intercept, which is why their failure to appear is both uncommon and concerning. She catches her thoughts drifting and pushes them back to their prescribed path. I dreamed I was late for work. She delivers this as a dry punchline for Alvin. Not only do her words highlight the difference between their former lives, but the very phrase, late for work, is amusing. It's such an outdated relic of a worry. Despite this, she'd woken panicked with a pounding heart. The dream had faded so fast that she was unable to recall what, beyond being late for work, could have evoked such a reaction but the tingle of adrenaline coursing from her heart through her limbs lingers even now, though she keeps her tone light, ready to let the telling of the dream rob it of its power. I was home, but I must have just returned from traveling. Everything was disorganized. My toothbrush was in my travel kit, but I couldn't find the toothpaste. Every pair of tights I put on had a hole. I kept frantically opening drawers and feeling under cushions for change for the bus, but I kept coming up short. It was intense. Super real. Super real. She tries to think how long she's been using that phrase. In the city, the onus had been on immigrants to mimic mainstream English. But here, although English is the common tongue, its native speakers are the minority. Beth isn't the only one who's begun to slip into sing-song tones, to omit words that no longer seem necessary, succumbing to the pleasures of new linguistic rhythms. Perhaps in a generation, the tribe will have a patois all its own. When they'd first set out, Beth hadn't even considered another generation. But there are four children now. She finds the two youngest riding their parents' shoulders, shaded by umbrellas held in dark mahogany hands. Beth's own hands are chapped and pink, despite the gauzy wrappings meant to protect them from the sun. Hand, younger, with smooth, unburned skin. Layer of polish on each fingernail. Swish of paisley print sleeve at wrist. Tap of ID to censor on turnstile. And then somehow I was at the office. I was wearing this shirt I'd wear when I was in a hurry because it didn't need to be ironed. But after a couple of hours, it would feel scratchy and you could never really get the sweat smell out of the armpits. It had too much polyester or nylon or something. Yes, I understand. My sister buy clothes at $5.99 on Pico Boulevard. Everything cost $5.99. But the materials are not good, not breathable, you know? Beth likes the way his accent inflates the word breathable. He falls silent. Indistinct chatter floats in the air around them, a word surfacing here or there in a mostly murmurous sea. From the faraway look on Alvin's face, Beth knows he's thinking of his younger sister, Yaya. As a born citizen, Yaya had had the option to stay in the city when the gates closed, and because she carried a child in her belly, she'd done so. She wanted doctors when the baby came, and she was young, only 24 with 31 long years to live. 
Alvin, older and with only a green card, had not had the same choice. In the first days after the announcement, people spoke of going with their older relatives, of striking out into the wilderness. But since the storms, the wilderness was not what it had been, and in the end, almost everyone younger than forty chose to stay in the city. It was the right decision for her, Alvin says when he is feeling doubt. Beth always agrees, partly because it's probably true, and mostly because it's not something that can be changed. The city will honor the pact, Alvin says now, wanting to feel convinced. They will. She knows the politicians won't deliver on every promise. When did they ever? But the guaranteed lifespans were the glue holding the city together. They couldn't go back on it. There would be an uproar. He nods and says nothing for a quarter of a mile. Then, I had an older sister, you know? Beth shakes her head. It is only recently that Alvin has spoken to her of his childhood. She wore bright colors, cottons. When I was three or four, I would watch her jump in a rope with her friends. She could jump so high from the ground. He smiles at the memory, then darkens. They killed her. They came and burned our village and took my father as well. We called them devils, but it was the government who sent them. Our own government lied to us. When we came to America, my mother, she told me that such things could never happen here. But that was before the storms, you know. He lapses into his own thoughts. The day is growing warmer. Walking east, the front of Beth's body heats up first. The skin of her thighs makes contact with the sun-heated fabric of her loose trousers with every forward step. But for sure you are right, Alvin says to Beth. They will keep the pact. By midday, the rocks and scrub look bleached under a sky of hard, unvaried blue. The tribe erects shade sails and gathers underneath them to wait out the hours when the air ripples with heat. Beth has friends with whom she normally shares her meals, but today she finds she is not up to joining a group. Any conversation is likely to turn to speculation about the scouts, which will be both useless and upsetting. And today... From the moment she woke from the dream, she has felt disconcertingly shaky. Still, when Alvin comes to join her in the isolated spot she has chosen near the edge of the largest sail, she feels a flush of happiness she can't deny. Their recent, tentative alliance is something she's avoided pondering. Just because they've enjoyed a stretch of days in each other's company is no mandate to go labeling things. Lately, though, there's been a question hanging in the air between them before they retreat to their respective tents, a question that has begun to linger even after she is curled up in her bedroll waiting for sleep. The question is not hers alone. Even in this moment, several tribe mates cast casual, sliding glances in their direction. Beth imagines the picture she and Alvin make, small and tall, 
silhouetted against the overbright landscape. It pains her to be unable to grapple with her feelings unobserved. Of the many luxuries lost in this new life, privacy is one she misses most. After a lunch of leathery meat, Beth and Alvin lie on their backs. A couple of flies flit, land, and crawl across their bodies. Beth pats at a tickling rivulet of perspiration between her breasts and encounters the ever-present grittiness of sand against her skin. The scratchy shirt in her dream last night is but one instance of a recurring motif. Scouring pads, crushed apricot seed face wash, and coarse-grained laundry detergent poured into gyrating tubs of moving water have all made appearances in her dreams, once common and unquestioned parts of daily life, now tangible only in slumber, dreamlike upon waking. The sun glares through the thinning canvas shade cloth. In a sleepy, heat-induced delirium, Beth thinks of laundry tumbling in a hot dryer. She thinks of chalky, perfumed dryer sheets. April fresh. She can't summon a memory of the smell. Strange to think there had been so many permutations of clean. Janitor's cart in hallway. Hurrying, hit, bump, thump, as plastic bottle lands, rolls, pink liquid sloshing. A smell like bubblegum or flowers. She rouses herself enough to report this newly remembered addendum. Bubblegum flowers, for sure a dream, murmurs Alvin. Clean, for sure a dream, she says, and her borrowed syntax prompts his barking laugh before they both lapse back into stupor. A few months ago, two scouts had found an untouched well, a heavy cover bolted over its low stone wall. It had been pure chance they'd stumbled across it, since the adjacent house, collapsed into its basement, was invisible to anyone scanning the horizon from a distance. As tribe members sifted through the rubble in search of salvageable items, they wondered who would have chosen to live so far from any town. A hermit? An eccentric? Maybe a celebrity tired of public life? Someone who'd had money enough to commission the well, which was almost a thousand feet deep. They had washed bodies and clothes and reveled in the feeling of clean. They'd camped for weeks, even planted and picked some quick-growing lettuce before being discovered by marauders who have a knack for finding anything good. There are a few factions of marauders, often assembled around ex-military personnel whom, it's rumored, were stationed in the desert and somehow left behind when the cities closed their gates. Marauders have fighters and guns and no children or elderly. The tribe, having children and elderly and no guns, had decided early on they would walk away from conflicts and trust luck they would again find whatever was lost or taken. Since walking away from the well, however, They've found little water, rains have been few, and now some are wondering if they might have trusted luck too much. Left, left, I left my wife in New Orleans with 50 kids and a can of beans. 
In the afternoon, the sand on the ground is coarser than in the morning and spread more thinly so that it crunches underfoot in time to the childhood rhyme Beth realizes has been running through her head for the past mile. The second leg of the day's journey is always harder. Everyone is drained by the heat and the first set of miles, though Beth can't help but smile as she tracks Alvin up ahead, moving between people, talking and joking. Another aspect of him she has come to appreciate, his unflagging morale. Beth has drifted toward the back of the group, letting her mind wander as it will. Upon her awareness, the chant in her head morphs into a song. Everything you own in a box to the left. She can't remember any other words, although she recalls it was about a woman kicking her man out of the house for cheating. Despite his transgressions, Beth finds herself feeling sorry for the man, exiled with his meager belongings unable to ever return home. The temperature drops as the sun approaches the horizon. Beth feels relief, even knowing it will soon settle into chill. When they stop walking, she'll strip off her sweat-dampened clothes and trade them for dry before the desert night turns cold. When the tribe was new, made up of strangers sitting around the fire at night, They'd compared their cold night dreams, and in doing so, revealed their former lives. Some dreamed of over-air-conditioned hotel rooms, others of snowy days in Michigan. There were dream memories of chilled oceans, swimming pools, and walk-in freezers. Beth had never shared hers, icy chemotherapy dripping through her veins. Especially in the tribe's early days, she had avoided disclosing anything that hinted she might be weak or a burden. Certain codes of conduct had been suggested to the tribes before they'd left the city, but of course there was no oversight. Some people had talked tough in news interviews before they left, saying it would be logical to cull the old and weak once they were outside the gates. As it turns out, the group of people Beth was assigned to, her tribe, has always taken care of each other. But even if she'd known there was no danger in mentioning her history, she wouldn't have wanted people whispering, saying she should have stayed in the city with its medicines and doctors. She'd heard this enough before she left, from friends and from Jerry, who would rather... April Fresh. April. The memory arrives with such force that Beth stumbles, catches herself with a heavy footfall. Rough texture of cubicle walls, ink marks on white laminate desk, computer booting, screen flickering to life. She remembers it had not happened in the morning, as in the dream, but later, after a long day of off-site meetings, she'd arrived at her desk. This was before portable electronics had made everything accessible, and the information she needed was still tethered to one machine. She was impatient to answer some emails she knew were waiting. When the login screen appeared, it took her a moment to process that the usual desktop image had been replaced by a new one. It was a photograph of Jerry holding a sign that said, It's April 8th. Do you know when your husband's birthday is? The remorse she'd felt was sudden and hot. In the photograph on her screen, Jerry had been grinning good-naturedly, 
no sign of reproach in his eyes. He'd often joked that if a plumber's family was the last to get their pipes fixed, the husband of an event producer was destined to miss a few birthday presents. He'd always been understanding of her calendar filled with an endless parade of deadlines. But seeing the picture, she'd known the truth, that she was cheating. Not with any person, but in the way she became caught up with her own life and let him disappear. She loved him, and yet she could forget about him completely, for hours, even days when they were apart. She knew that when important moments happened in his life, he thought about her, but she never managed to reliably return the favor. Even now. A woman named Myra keeps the official calendar for the tribe. Beth goes through the motions of confirming the date, although she knows. She has known all along. She returns to the back of the group, treading upon a moving tapestry of long afternoon shadows cast by row after row of her companions. She feels dizzy at the sight. Simply by virtue of being vertical, they are all sundials, their shadows marking the turning of the earth, the passing of time. Tempus breve est, her Latin teacher had taught them in high school, saying that one day they would understand. A sense of hysteria comes over her. She opens her mouth, feeling she has to release whatever is inside, unsure if it will be sound or laughter or vomit, but nothing comes out. But then she feels the air hitting her wet face and realizes that tears are rolling down her cheeks. Water from her eyes is falling, wasteful, in the sand. That night, the tribe gathers to officially discuss their situation. Beth is perched on her low canvas stool not too far from the fire when Alvin finds her. He sets his bony frame on a slab of rock, then rises to rotate and adjust it. What was that word they had for the chairs with the... He mimes, adjusting levers. Ergonomic? Beth guesses. Yes. My rock for the evening is ergonomic. He grins at her, firelight reflecting in his eyes. She feels him observing her, knows others have told him about her crying. She dreads answering questions, but he doesn't ask any. Instead, he reaches for her hand and clasps it. For the first time, she does not let go, but holds on tight. Our pace has been consistent, says Ernesto at the meeting, his tone defensive because he is one who often walks in front. It doesn't make sense that both pairs of scouts would overshoot our path. Maybe they see the green and decide to go more far, says Noi, an older Thai woman. It take longer, but they come. Or they did find water, but ran into others who didn't feel like sharing. This comment from their sole Brit, Alistair, prompts a silent moment. There are rumors of communities who have ceased being nomadic, having found sufficient resources to live, at least in limited numbers. With no walls for defense, it makes sense they would go to great lengths to protect the secrecy of their locations. If the scouts have encountered one of these communities, they won't be returning. 
the main question to address is when the tribe should send out more people and who should go. The conversation is heated, has disintegrated into hubbub, when a voice near Beth says, If they don't come back by morning, I will go and look. It takes her a moment to comprehend that it is Alvin's voice she is hearing, that he has volunteered to go. Slowly, she unwraps her stiffened fingers and pulls her hand away from his. As soon as the meeting is over, Beth retreats to her tent. Alvin follows. I am older. Better to have the young ones here if there is a fight. And I have known the desert. Of course, she says. That makes sense. She knows he wants her to look up and meet his eyes. She waits out the long moment until he realizes she won't. Good night, then. His steps make no sound as he walks away. In her tent, Beth curls against the cold. She wonders about Jerry's death. The government's information had promised a ritual, but hadn't specified what that meant, emphasizing only that people would have different options to choose from. One late-night comedy show became momentarily famous for an inspired poisoned vodka martini or poisoned cupcake sketch. Jerry had signed his contract without knowing any details. Years before, after Beth's cancer diagnosis, people had quickly begun calling her a survivor, even before her treatment was complete. It made her uncomfortable, at times angry. It was ridiculous to have them ascribe her continued existence to some heroic determination on her part, even as she shivered, puked, and languished, completely dependent on the efforts of others. Jerry had stayed by her side throughout, seeming never to flinch. It wasn't until later, after the storms began, that she learned how those months of watching her suffer had affected him, how during the worst of it, he had vowed that for himself he would choose quality of life over quantity, if time to choose should ever come. The time, as it turned out, had come for everyone. And only then had Beth realized she had indeed been transformed, not overnight, but so gradually that under different circumstances she might never have noticed, into her own version of a survivor. She found she was incapable of accepting that anyone, doctor or government official, should tell her how long she would live. She no longer cared about risks or statistics. She wanted to envision possible futures and embrace them without the limitation of fear. That's what she'd said to Jerry as they lay in their bed together for the last time. Without limitation of fear. Big words to live up to. The half moon provides some help as Beth carries her bedroll through the icy night and crouches outside Alvin's tent. He unzips the door for her and pulls her inside without a word. Later, he will curl around her, his body curved like a gazelle's slender horn, and she will close her eyes and dream of two figures making their way across the sand. 
The story you just heard was first published in the anthology Turning Points, Stories About Choice and Change. It was written and read by me, Barrington Smith-Satachet, with music and sound design by Greg Gordon-Smith.